All right, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We continue uh, living faithfully in a faithless place, otherwise uh, biblically here kind of known as Babylon, as an image of what it, um, it was like for them. <coughs> Give you a second to get there. Uh, we'll be doing verses 8 through 12 this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to, live, to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Uh, let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are not sufficient in ourselves to understand your word. Uh, we are not sufficient in ourselves to live according to your word. We are not sufficient in ourselves to declare your word. But you and your wisdom have placed the treasure of this gospel in jars of clay so that the glory of Jesus, his life and his death, may be manifested in us. So help us to understand more of how you manifest Jesus in our lives this morning through this portion of your word. And we ask this in his name. Amen. <coughs> You'd think family life would be easier. You know each other. You love each other. And yet family life is often sometimes the most difficult life precisely because, as was mentioned out there, you know each other. <laughs> Your sins are far more apparent to one another and far more irritating to one another in part because of the closed quarters. Now imagine for a moment adoption. Some of you don't have to imagine this. But bringing someone from a very different background into the family. Hey, wait a minute, that's marriage too. But bringing someone from a very different background into a family and then trying to create, so to speak, uh, what is necessary to keep a family together, love and patience and kindness and all of these things, that's a tall order. It's not something that simply happens in the Cavalero household or some of the other households that are here, uh, but it's something that happens in the church. Uh, for you are part of God's household, you have been made part of His family, and you have come from very different places with very different mindsets and values and experiences. And yet, God is calling us to live as one family together with one another. 
That is where Peter is going, I believe, in this portion of the, of the text. The big idea this morning is that Jesus calls us to give and receive grace. We're going to look at this in two ways this morning. And the first way is that Jesus gives us the grace to give grace to others. He starts this section with one of these summation things, and he's not like a preacher coming to the end of his sermon, but he's sort of wrapping up that, what he, that which he's been talking about since the middle of chapter 2 of this letter. Finally, all of you. Okay, so he's connecting what he's saying here with the idea of living honorably as sojourners and exiles in their place. He's wrapping up what it means for them to, <coughs> pardon me, um, to live faithful lives in a very unfaithful place. This is not just for one or two of them, but here it is for all of them, regardless of their particular situation, regardless of whether they're a citizen or a non-citizen, whether they're slave or free, whether they're husbands or wives, whether they're children, whatever their particular lot in life might be, this instruction is for all of them. This encompasses their life within the church, within the family, and among the unfaithful around them. Now, before we get into sort of the text itself and and, and what's being taught there, I want us to understand that the, the hinge upon which this whole passage sort of swings, you know, like the hinge of a door, this passage really swings on this idea, for to this you were called. Okay, you, you eliminate that and none of this really makes any sense whatsoever. Okay, they were called to this holiness of life. They were not to be holy in order to be called. Okay, let's try to make sure we get the, the gospel flow of this passage, the gospel context of this passage. Uh, this is not about how they can find acceptance from God. This is about how they are lit, to live precisely because they have already received acceptance from God. They've already been given the righteousness of Christ by faith. So this is how they're to live as a result. It is not, how can I earn brownie points with Jesus. Okay, So let's keep it within that context. Otherwise, we're going to do very bad things to this passage. And we, I would do very bad things to you pastorally, so to speak. In at least two of his books, Jared Wilson says this thing. He says, A message of grace will attract people, but a culture of grace will keep them. And part of how I take that is that you can talk about grace all you want, and therefore people will end up in the pews, but they will not remain there unless there is also a matching culture of grace. If the message of grace has gone from the head down into the heart so that people are exhibiting grace towards one another. And that is exactly uh, Peter's point here in the third chapter. He's wanting them not just to 
believe intellectually in the grace of God in Jesus Christ, but he wants them now to exhibit a culture of grace within their community of faith. And so he has these odd sort of commands. It's a series of uh, adjectives. Uh, These are the things they're supposed to have. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these because most of these are fairly well known and understood. These, These things are not rocket science, so to speak. And yet, they're very difficult for us to incorporate. But Peter here is talking about attitudes or traits. He's talking about character, which will then produce actions. But sometimes we are, we, because of our sin, are all too prone to focus on actions and not necessarily the character that is necessary to produce them. And so he is focused on their character traits. Let's think about these for a moment before we... I don't want to go in depth with them, but neither do I just want to go zinging on by. Okay? But some of these things, think for a moment the idea of being of one mind or having unity of mind, another way of kind of putting this thing, that... It's not the idea that we're to be clones and that, you know, Eric and I have to think the same way about everything, okay? That's not what Peter is getting at. Uh, But really, when we disagree, we're able to place that disagreement aside because we have a greater commitment to Christ and his body. Okay? So this is not a call towards, um, you know, cultish um, brainwashing and, uh, you know, everyone believing the same thing. We can disagree about things, but we have a greater mind towards those things that we have in common that bind us together that are greater than the things that separate us. This idea that uh, we are we rejoice with those who rejoice, as Peter uh, Paul says in Romans twelve, which is very similar to this passage we have here. This idea of tenderness towards one another, because there is so much harshness within the world, and because Christ has been tender to us in our sin. This idea that brotherly love kind of binds all of these things together. Uh, similar to how you, know, you carry a, a load of sticks by binding them together with a rope. makes it much easier. And so we see here a reflection of what, of what Paul says in many places. For instance, in talking about the reality of the body, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. In 1 Corinthians 12. How are we able to love one another and to show this brotherly love that happens here, that Philadelphia thing happening? And if you are familiar with Philadelphia now, you don't see that as a positive thing. At least I don't. I I don't have very many positive images of the city of Philadelphia. Uh, But Peter is talking about something a little different here. Um, How do we have that? 
Well, precisely what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And because we experience the love of God, because it has been poured into our hearts, we are able to love other people. And so the grace is given to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then it overflows into, in a way that we can love other people. Do you grasp what I'm getting at? And that, that, that Corvette that keeps coming through a parking lot is going to drive me insane. Dude, go somewhere. Please. Um, I'm not expressing bo- uh, 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 brotherly love at that moment. Uh, sorry. Um, it's my ADD thing. It, it's happening. Um, <clears throat> and so we receive these things, and we then give these things. And so they all find their root in Jesus Christ and our union with Jesus Christ, and then it overflows into the lives of others, especially, but not limited to, those who are also united to Jesus Christ by faith. So, This is about people who are committed to the health of the community of faith, who are committed to the health of the family of which they are a part. And unfortunately, it only takes one or two people to destroy a group. I like football. One of the famous mantras of my favorite coach is, Do your job. And what he means by that, Coach Belichick, is that every player who's on the field has a job to do, and in order for the team to be successful in any particular play, each person has to do their job. And if just one person doesn't do their job, it fails. Some of you have been in the military You understand that in order for a squad or platoon to fulfill its mission, each person there must also do their job. And if one person fails to do their job, the lives of everyone are at risk. And so it only takes one person, really, to fail to do these things, to, to fail to display brotherly love, to have an arrogant mind, to, to sow dissension within the body, to really destroy a community. Sadly, it only takes one to destroy, but it takes all to build. Now, again, remember, that Jesus displayed all of these things to us in his earthly ministry. That Jesus displayed this oneness of mind with the Father, submitting himself to the will of the Father as our Savior, as the Messiah, as the Christ. Not only that, but we see that Jesus showing sympathy for people and healing people out of that sympathy. And so the, the character and then the action flowing out of that character. We see Jesus showing brotherly love displayed in many places, but including the washing of the disciples' feet and an act of service to them that flowed out of His love. Jesus, who had a tender heart, who wept at the death of His friend Lazarus. Jesus, who had a humble mind, who though He was in the, he was in the form of God, did not consider that something to be grasped, but emptied himself of everything and became a servant or a slave. 
And so we see Jesus, who has displayed all of these things, because this is who he is, and because we're united to him, that's what he's going to build in us. He's going to give us that grace. That's the positive side. Okay, But we recognize we don't have these things. We, we recognize that we struggle with these things. And, and therefore, there's room here for confession of the mess that we are. Jesus, I don't always have unity of mind with my brothers and sisters. Sometimes I want my own stinking way. Jesus, I don't always show brotherly love towards my brothers and sisters. Jesus, my heart is not as tender as it ought to be. Sometimes I'm just caught up in my, my, my agenda and my schedule and everything's got to be on time. And so I'm not as tender as I need to be. We need to confess these things to Him and sometimes to one another. But here's the flip side that Peter goes to. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And so, in a sense, you know, there's that, that phrase that sometimes is used, uh, I don't get mad, I get even. And so, Peter is telling us that that breaker needs to be flipped so that that process doesn't continue. But we need to interrupt the flow of energy uh, that is happening in the reviling or in the, the cursing or the, or the evil so that we are not treating others in kind. And grace is what teaches us to not treat people like we've been treated but rather to trust God to do what is right. Frankly, I, I cover my children's ears. I don't know how many times in a given day Amy or I say, treat people like you want to be treated, not like how they've just treated you. Because what happens with the kids a million times a day? One provokes another, and there's retaliation. The cycle of violence, and which is not all that violent in my household. Uh, don't worry. But still, it's the heart attitude that I, that I want to get at. That the gospel is intended to change that heart attitude so that no longer am I seeking my pound of flesh because someone has wronged me. No, no longer am I turning uh, uh, you know, their insults and flipping it into another insult back at them. And I'm not talking about jesting with your friends. I mean when you really mean it. The gospel intercept, uh, interferes with, breaks this, this cycle of, of evil back and forth. Precisely because Jesus, who did not repay evil for evil, Jesus, who did not revile when he was reviled, he dwells within us in order to restrain such desires that arise within our hearts, such patterns that have been developed when we were children. Now, Peter illustrates this in part from Psalm 34. He says, you know, this person should keep his tongue from all evil, his lips from speaking deceit. 
We have to recognize that as the sins of the, of the lips and the tongue, the words that we speak that so often create chaos within a community. <coughs> that there are people, when they preserve community, they're not spreading lies, they're not spreading gossip, they're not speaking slander, they're not insulting. But we recognize the difficulty of this. James 3. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. You can't tame your tongue. Only Jesus can tame your tongue. Only He can take the poison from your tongue. But that all flows, that poison from the tongue, all flows from a heart that does not know brotherly love. That is not uh, committed to unity of mind. That doesn't have humbleness of mind. I've been a pastor for an amazingly long time now. And it's frightening for me to think of the many experiences of people running off from a church in a huff. Sometimes it's because they didn't get their way. Sometimes it's because uh, someone sinned against them. And rather than deal with that biblically, they would just run away. Too often it happens. Too easily it happens. I know of someone right now who's left a one Presbyterian church and gone to another church. And it's because of a minute point of theology. It's a, it's a point of theology that I was, I was reading a, a book by R.C. Sproul uh, yesterday. Um, and, I, and my thought was, wow, my friend is essentially calling R.C. Sproul a heretic. My Presbyterian friend, okay, is calling R.C. Sproul a heretic. That does not compute in my teacup-sized brain. But we do that. And it's so contrary to what Peter wants and what Paul has talked about in other places. There's a positive side to this. Let's go back to the positive. He says, seek peace and pursue it. Again, he's quoting from Psalm 34. Um, it isn't just that we prefer peace. Peace is a good thing. I think everyone likes peace and peacefulness. But what, what the psalmist is saying and what Peter is also repeating here is saying they pursue it. There is a persistence to this. Uh, this word of pursue is found in a number of places, like Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you catch the word? Persecuted. That's the same word that Peter uses here in 
First uh, Peter chapter three. Same thing in Acts chapter nine when Jesus encounters Saul. It forces the encounter with Saul on the road to Damascus. He uses that word and he says, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And Saul goes, "Who are you?" And he says, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting." And once again, that word for is. For pursue has that, can also have that idea of persecuting, the intensity of the pursuit. And so we're to be persistent in our pursuit of something good called peace. As, as, as Paul says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with everybody. Pursue peace. When they sin against you, pursue them for reconciliation. Don't just go, oh, well, another one bites the dust. Another friendship gone. Yeah, move on. But pursue peace. In Hebrews 12, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, there's a reality here uh, that if we're, if we're not pursuing peace, something is fundamentally wrong in our relationship with Christ. Especially when we consider that Jesus pursued peace in His death. He is our peace, and He makes us peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. And so we see here that Jesus gives us the grace that we need to give grace to other people in order to preserve the peace in the community that Jesus has purchased with his blood. All right, the second part of this. That Jesus gives us this grace so we obtain earthly blessings. And uh, please don't jump to conclusions when I use that phrase, earthly blessings. Okay, we'll explain that in just a moment. But this is back to that, that idea of to this you were called or for this you were called, because of this you were called. The whole rationale of, of, of uh, Peter's reasoning here, for to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. That's what Peter tells them. You're called to live this way so that you might obtain a blessing. And that sounds a little foreign to us because we realize that we have been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what's kind of going on here? It's a good question to ask. Essentially what we have going on here is that God gives us grace in Jesus Christ so that he can give us even more grace in Jesus Christ. This is not an earning of God's blessing, but it is in a sense, as some people say, God crowning the grace that He already gives us. Do we believe that He's rich in grace? 
Do we believe that this is one of the foundational characteristics of who God is? Or do we think that He's got just a little bit of grace for me? What you think about this greatly affects how you live. How you live in your relationship with God and how you live in relationship with other people. If I think God is not very gracious towards me, I'm going to become embittered. I'm going to hide from God. I'm not going to seek God and His mercy and forgiveness. I'm going to be a miserable person. And I'm also going to spread my misery to other human beings. Because I will not be brotherly in love, and I will not be humble in mind, and I will not be tender, I will not be sympathetic. I will be hard and cruel and dispensing lots of justice, but no mercy. Let's see how this kind of plays out, for instance. Genesis 18. Let's remember. Genesis 18 occurs within the context of Abraham's gracious call to faith in chapter 12, uh, God's gracious making of the covenant with him in uh, chapter 15, in which God says that if he doesn't fulfill all of this, he himself will be slain, so to speak. So a good promise. And so we see in Genesis 18, verse uh, 19, my eyes are struggling, uh, for I have chosen him, meaning Abraham, that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so the idea of offspring that, 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 you know, the father of many nations, the idea of, of receiving the land, all of these things, these, these, the earthly aspects of the promise are, are really grounded in, in a sense, Abraham doing what God told him to do. That sounds strange to us. We believe in grace, Right? Right. The only way Abraham can do these things is by grace. And then God rewards that grace that he gave with grace. It's like a tumbling down snowball that becomes a gigantic thing, but a beautiful thing. We see it as well here. In Psalm 34, which um, Peter is quoting, and what's interesting is if if you look at the heat, at the Old Testament, it's a question mark. Who desires to love life and see good days? And then it answers it with the rest. Peter has essentially dropped the question mark, assuming maybe. That these people, because they are in Christ, they want, uh, they desire to love life and see good days. And so he's, this is for you, folks. But there's God's promise 
There's the walking uh, in the way of righteousness and God's fulfillment. The people here, you know, to live long in the land. This is really, in a sense, a reflection of what we see in the first command with a promise. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That there's so much of the, rea- the reality that flows out of that in, Deut- in uh, Deuteronomy that we see as we're exploring judges in our community groups, uh, that their enjoyment of the earthly blessings is in part contingent about walking with faithfulness. That's hard for us to figure out when we, we believe in grace. And yet there it is. So let's see what, what is going on here. The blessing that is in view here is earthly, not eternal. Now some people uh, will want to take this into the eternal promise, but I think this is the, from the context, an earthly sort of thing. This is pointing to the reality that God is at work in our lives here and now. That there's not, oh, you've been converted, you've been justified, and then you know God will deal with you again when you die. And it won't be great uh, living this life um, away from God. No, it won't be. That's horrible. But we see a God who is promising to engage himself in our lives in the here and the now. But we see that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. This is the first of the promises that is laid out here. God sees us. God sees our circumstances. He sees when we are mistreated. He sees when we are unjustly treated, when we are sinned against in many ways. God sees this. For instance... Hagar, that's someone we talk about a whole lot. But let's remember, this should indicate to you, however, that I'm currently in Genesis in my own personal reading, because this is my second Genesis quotation, okay? Um, (laughs) Hagar was misused and given by Sarah to Abraham to try and produce an heir in the flesh, She produces a child, and while she's still pregnant, she begins to look down upon her mistress, Sarah. Sarah, not happy about this, as you might imagine, decides to treat her harshly. Huh, this sounds a lot like that, reviling those who have reviled you. Okay, grace was not evident in Abraham's household at that point in time, and so Hagar flees rather than restoring their relationship and saying, you know what, I shouldn't have looked down on you. And so she is thinking she's going to die here in the wilderness, and God appears. But what he says, what, what she responds to when he says, go back home, is, you are a God of seeing, or you are the God who sees. For she said, truly here I have seen him, and here's the point, who looks after me? God was looking after Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid of Sarah. God was looking after her. And God looks after us. We see this as well in a, in a slightly different context. In Second Chronicles 16, 
We have the prophet coming to King Asa. And Asa had started off as a very good king, but now he's really struggling. And there's this promise that is given that Asa is not going to receive because of his sinfulness. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Judgment is going to come upon Israel because their hearts are not toward God. But the ones who were would experience this reality of God giving strong support to them. And so living in a faithless place, we recognize that God sees the injustice that we can experience and that God will then summarily act for you. The second part of this promise is, and his ears are open to their prayer, uh, that God hears when we cry out to him. In other words, our prayers are not hindered as we talked about last week when there's conflict in the home. Prayers are hindered. And one way is God's ear is not turned toward you. He's not open to hearing your prayer. When we disregard God and His revealed will, He may not regard us when we cry out to Him. But thankfully, He's merciful. And even though He shouldn't, He often does hear us when we cry out to Him, even though we're being quite rebellious ourselves. As we study judges in the community group, we see basically people that continually disregarded God and they did it in such a way that they didn't even call out to God. And when we ignore God, we often also can sometimes accuse Him when things don't go the way we think they should go. So we see God, you know... Working, listening to, and seeing what happens uh, for those who love life and and who um, want to see good days. But then we have this: but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In other words, they don't receive the priestly blessing that we see in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But you see here in, in, a, in Psalm 34, it's not that God turns his back to these people. Okay, It's not that his face is turned away, but his face is turned toward them in justice to oppose them. Because God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud, the callous, the slanderous, the deceitful, the unforgiving, and so much more. And so we have to remember that God is not pleased with us, or he's, not, or not, he's rather, he's not pleased with those who seek to divide, divide and destroy the people that Jesus purchased. God is not going to sit casually by while his while Jesus's bride is ravaged by sin but that Jesus will engage himself for the protection of those who love him and the foiling of those who don't. He is pleased with those who do good with those who seek to maintain the peace of the holy community. And so, brothers and sisters, the church is the household of God. It is comprised of people who have been adopted into his family. 
But you and I live in a faithless place, and many of us have faithless pasts. And so he teaches us to live faithful lives in the church and in godly families. We learn slowly. I learned so slowly. I wanted to destroy my computer this morning. I was impatient with its, once again, horrible timing to go and have a conniption. We learn slowly, but we have been united to Jesus Christ so that His character grows in us like fruit. Fruit grows slow, in case you didn't notice. Weeds, they grow fast. It is in those difficult moments when we are to cry out to Christ to work in us and through us because of Christ's work for us. So confess your mess and receive His grace to walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Father, um, there was a lot there. There's a lot that if we hear the wrong way can crush us and destroy us. And so help, help us to hear these things with, with gospel ears. With a, with a mind toward the fact of Christ who has fulfilled all of this for us and now works in us so that we will fulfill it. That, that we're not on our own and that this is not intended to uh, condemn us. But as your people, it is intended to uh, move us forward. So help us to better understand the, the concept of grace and the, the way in which grace works in our lives. Father, help us to trust that You, in fact, see and hear us. That You, you are not callous to what we experience, but that You know the injustices we experience in the family. You know the injustices we experience in the workplace, in the community, in church, all wherever it is. You see that. You, you hear our cries to You. And you respond and work. Help us to believe you actually do that. Help us to believe that you are good. Help us to believe that you are rich in mercy. Because our hearts struggle with that. We think you're hard. We can easily think that you're, you're mean, callous, and unconcerned, and uninvolved, and, and seek our destruction. Help us to believe the truth about who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.